Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema both in front of and behind the camera by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. Uh, we always recommend you go out and visit their website. and They have a slew of great podcasts, such as the Beer Swigging um, and Beer Loving podcast, Drink Along. Also, uh, Modern Superior has a Patreon page, so if you want to support the network and the various podcasts on it, uh, you can do so for as little as $2 a month, and that will give you access to various Patreon perks. Most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and we would really love it if you could go on iTunes and give us a review because it helps to get our message of diversity in cinema out to the masses. Andrew, how are you doing today? Been a long uh, few days. My grandmother died last week. Um, so for listeners and, of course, for you, Courtney, no apologies or anything like that needed. She lived a good long life. Thanks to her, I gathered a early appreciation for Sidney Poitier because she loved In the Heat of the Night, both the movie, the song, and the TV show. And she very much instilled a strong hunger for reading at an extremely early age with me, on top of introducing me to the loveliness that is Rubber Ducky from Sesame Street. So, obviously tired from that, because... While I'm telling folks no condolences, my own, obviously, emotional state's fluctuating now and again. But she was a great lady. She was a great grandma. She loved animals. And I've got a lot of good stuff to remember her by. So that's been my few days. I realize I don't exactly have a good segue for... uh you to tell me how you've been, so... Courtney. Oh, you know what? <laughs> you don't even need a segue. It's, but I was thinking as you were talking, maybe we should do The Heat of the Night, because it's a great film, and I'd love to rewatch it again, and also just as a, as a tribute to your grandma. Oh, that would be nice. Yeah, maybe we could uh, see about it. those folks who are listening or thinking maybe about contributing. If you'd like to hear us talk about In the Heat of the Night, you know, go on over to the Patreon page, and if you are a patron there... Back it up, and then uh, maybe we'll get some heat going in the night. Yeah, that's great. For me, there's not been too much going on. I've been slowly trying to catch up with some of the the big summer movies. Uh, took my son to see Spider-Man Homecoming recently, and I've also I watched, was it Okja on Netflix? And Baby Driver, I think, was the last thing. Yeah, I'm taking a bit of a break because of the stuff that's going on, but um, I, I guess I'm curious as to maybe some capsule thoughts on all three of those, because I had some big issues with Baby Driver, though I did really like it in the long run, and I'm not going to watch Homecoming, because I have an MCU band that I will continue until Black Panther, and that's it. And I plan also on watching Okja to, uh, or Okja whichever to review for can't stop the movies maybe next week so i guess a uh, capsule thoughts on all three of those well i will say for um baby driver i was actually on the Lambcast podcast and i'll try and remember to put a link to that in the show notes where we were discussing baby driver um my quick thoughts on it i think the first half is a lot of fun and the second half has a lot of problems and by the time you got to the last 20 minutes i was not happy with that film so <laughs> So when I think back to it, I think about the first part, I'm like, oh, a lot of fun. But man, that that last 20 minutes was uh, was really annoying and really enjoyed Homecoming. I would say go see it. If you're banning, a, if you're anti-MCU, then go see it because it's Sony. Tony Stark is in it. 
There's that the tie-in. There's the Civil War. It's MCU, unfortunately. Sony film or no, I know that it came across some kind of horse trading deal between the two. I'm full for that uh, horse trading deal because <laughs> putting it into the MCU actually works a lot better than what Sony was doing on its own. As for Okja, I really liked it. Jake Gyllenhaal's performance is a little questionable. It's a little out there, but overall, I thought it was a, a really enjoyable adventure, but also surprisingly touching. Like I didn't expect that I would care so much for a super pig as I did <laughs> by the end of it. And, well, it, and it goes to some dark, dark places, which I was I was shocked. But. It's Bong Joon-ho, right? Yep, that's true. So that much is expected, and with Jake Gyllenhaal, whenever he gets a little weird, I get a little happy. So that's also reassuring there. The only question I would have on those three quick capsules, the problems that you had the last 20 minutes or last half or so of Baby Driver, I was actually rooting for John Hamm's character, Buddy, at the end of Baby Driver, because I kind of hated Baby at that point. Was that along the lines of where your thinking was? If anything, I was rooting for probably Spacey and Jamie Foxx, because my problems were, one, characters make changes that completely go against everything that they've done for the most of the film. Like, there's a turn that Kevin Spacey makes towards the end that is just simply ridiculous. I liked that Jamie Foxx was pretty consistent throughout, but the fact that the whole thing is baby driver, you've established that he's a great driver, and yet you don't use the car at all. <laughs> in the final moments, like you even steal a fantastic car. Like there's too many moments where things just are falling by the wayside. It always irks me when, not to spoil things, but there's like the what I call the Terminator moment where normal people seemingly become indestructible. And then I will just say that the last five minutes without spoiling really annoyed me because if we were going to talk about diversity, if he was any other individual, that would not occur. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, that... It, it almost makes me wish that it was a little more diverse in its cast because I, I would have a hard time justifying talking about it for our show. So I guess if there are any listeners out there who uh, would like a guest spot with the two of us on your own show, we would love to discuss Baby Driver on the racial politics front and perhaps the um, Chekhov's car aspect as well. I really dug it, but I very much hear you on the issues with it. Which is funny, though, because I would say that it does incorporate diversity for the most part. It's just certain characters have advantages that other ones don't. Because when I think back to that film, it is a fairly diverse cast throughout. So I could easily talk about it on the show as well. But it's just, uh, I don't know, I had some issues. So maybe we will have to look back on, on Baby Driver and go into like a full-fledged discussion. Maybe so. Maybe so. I do like the idea a lot. So um, I guess, listeners, keeping that in mind, if you get to it first, feel free to invite us. Otherwise, we may try and squeeze it in sometime soon. Now, we like to start off each episode by highlighting two short films that are available online, mainly because we love short films. So, Andrew, what did you choose for us this week? Well, we're having a month of patriotism because, obviously, the 4th of July was last week. Not my holiday of choice. I'm not a very nationalistic person, and our method of celebration involves a lot of alcohol and explosives. A unfortunate accident when I lived in Clearwater, Florida, wherein a fireworks thing that shot sparks out very high and very fast came right at my forehead 
and uh, hit my eight-year-old self, causing me to fall down. So I'm not big on fireworks. I have deep-seated personal trauma there. So that also means that since I'm not big on nationalism and I'm not big on celebration of patriotism at all, I wanted to pick something that kind of flew in the face of that. And I remember seeing this. It's uh, was up eight years later. For those of you young enough that may not remember the was up commercials, they were from Budweiser and they were profoundly annoying. You'd have a bunch of friends asking each other to pick up the phone and going, yep. Bad stuff. Bad stuff. The, the late 90s and pre 9-11-2000s were an escalating cavalcade of just horrible advertising. So that's why I love this. This wasn't made for Budweiser. In fact, they had to put a large disclaimer at the very end saying that this is not a movie that Anheuser-Busch supported. And it turns the was up obnoxious dudes into very sympathetic figures. Instead of being able to party around with their beer, everyone has their problems. Um, some folks are losing their homes. Some folks are badly injured. In one terrifying and hilarious quick shot, one of the friends is screaming in total horror in the middle of what looks like Hurricane Katrina. And just kind of the grotesque over-the-topness of the 90s advertising culture mixed in with the way that each of the former Was Up folks are dealing with America's problems, it's really affecting to me. And it ties in also kind of with patriotism because the whole short was essentially a advertisement for Barack Obama, a man whose presidency is probably the best I'm going to see in my lifetime. I mean, I say that with a heavy heart because as much as I loved Obama, I didn't exactly support everything he did, but he did make life better. So there's a lot of pathos packed into a very short time, and seeing this as a response to the excess of commercials in the late 90s and pre-9-11 2000s, it's surprisingly smart for ostensibly being kind of dumb. I remember when the What's Up ads first came out, and I'll admit, the first one made me laugh, and then it suffered what many 90s commercials suffered, where they just used them to death, found various situations to have these guys say what's up, where the first time was a charm. So when I first started this, I was like, oh, they're doing this again? But I wasn't, again, I wasn't expecting that, that pathos that came with it. It really worked, and I almost felt bad because the parts that made me laugh in this one were like some of the really dark moments. Like You talked about the Hurricane Katrina, but for me, it was when one of the guys is realizing that all his stocks are plummeting, the financial crisis they're tapping into, and he tries to commit suicide. So as he's trying to hang himself, he's still, you know, his what's up is more like the gurgling of, of him being strangled. <laughs> um, yes. And it's it's a really morbid moment, but I couldn't help but laugh at that one because it was just, I don't know, maybe that was just my way to release that tension, but I found it funny. And then I had to stop for a minute and go, I can't believe I'm laughing at this because it's such a serious thing, but it's it's so well done. I'm surprised that it was even Budweiser or Anheuser-Busch. I'm, I'm surprised they even allow this. Like this day and age, I would assume that if you tried to make this now, there would be lawsuits up to Wazoo. Entirely possible, yeah, because this was before a lot of major internet viral video things were part of our common 
culture or common verbiage or however you want to put it. And that's when we're talking about how well this works and the attempted suicide. That's where the background details in this are extremely well done, because I went to go visit a buddy of mine in South Carolina before the crash in 2008, well, late 2007, and then on into 2008. The background in this was up eight years later. It's an unfinished house. Everything is sparse. You look at the kitchen that looks like in the background and the cabinets are kind of undone. And part of what makes the attempted suicide so funny is that he fails. I mean, we are saying attempted here. And part of the reason that he fails is literally the house is too weak. Like, that's such a great little metaphor for what happened with the housing market and then the the markets overall as everything fell into the gutter. (laughs) And just the crashing sound and then him coughing as the bits of drywall from this unfinished, shaky house come down on him. That's how the construction business was. Like, my buddy worked in Charleston, South Carolina, making McMansions. So I remember following him around work and walking through these gigantic, empty homes where no one had been moving in yet. And one of them was going to have its own private elevator and the the home itself was only like four stories so you have this excess in this empty place next to this gorgeous scenery and in months it's all going to be gone so that's why this kind of hits me on a personal level too because looking at the unfinished state of the home and how it's keeping everyone from living their lives because of the because of the attempted suicide we can also guess how one of the participants ended up in that partial body cast as he's trying to move things around and is also in pain. Also, a shout-out to that guy for hinting at our current opioid crisis here in America, because one of the darkly funny moments is when the main dude is asking partial body cast guy to pick up the phone. He's like, yo, forget the phone! I need painkillers! You got money for painkillers? So much of this was eerily prescient and hilarious. Kind of partly because of my privileged bubble, it was hard for me to see exactly how bad things were and what Obama meant to people at that time. And there's just so much about this that works on such like tiny and big levels. It works well for when Obama's coming in, because when he came in, he had to deal with basically cleaning up the financial crisis. You know, people didn't have sufficient health care in large sections of America. There's moments to this film where you're like, a lot of this stuff worked perfectly for when Obama was just coming in and the whole idea of change. And then you think about where we are now, and this almost takes on a whole new level. So if you if you put it in the context of now where you have a certain healthcare policy, but it's getting repealed and replaced, if you want to believe the whatever the jargon is, that guy's gonna, again be asking for painkillers because he can't afford them. The unemployment issue seems to be fluctuating depending on who you listen to, and some would say that oh, it's the markets and the jobs were going down when the last part of Obama's years was like no, it's actually it was going back up. But now you're making policy changes that are cutting jobs in areas where you shouldn't be cutting. So I don't know. I was surprised that, A, they they made this and that it was effective for what it was trying to achieve eight years ago. And now 
this is still relevant. Like those, these guys from the nineties are actually deep and thought provoking many years later. Yeah, it's it's just a great twist around that something so garish and annoying could be turned into something so insightful. Um, so I'd also like to give a special shout out to the director of this short, who also did the original Was Up Bad, Charles Stone III, who also directed a personal favorite of mine, Drumline, because I love drums, and I can stomach Nick Cannon, depending on the role. This is one of the roles I can stomach him in. So a little less humorous, I think, with your short, and something that I've got some deep thoughts about. So why don't you tell us a bit about it? This month was a difficult one for me in terms of how to assess it, because when we were talking about patriotism, I didn't even expect you to pick the feature film that we're going to be discussing today. So being even though that Canada recently had their 150th celebrations and, you know, Canada Day was July 1st, we look at patriotism and pride in our country different than you guys do in America. It's, it's very understated in our celebration. So when I was thinking about America and I was thinking about American life, I was looking for short films that kind of tapped into certain facets of that. And I came across this one called In Guns We Trust, which is directed by Nicholas Levesque, who I guess is, if my research is correct, is Canadian. It's his look at a small town community in America is uh, Kennesaw, which I believe is just outside of Georgia or near the state of Georgia. Oh, it's in Georgia. I could drive there now. I'm not going to, especially after watching this, but I could. Okay. In this town of Kennesaw, they have a law that dates back to, I guess, 1982, that each head of household must own a fully operational gun and have ammo for that gun. This all started because a community in Chicago, or a small town either just outside of Chicago, had banned guns. And the elders, the town folk at Kennesaw, didn't like the fact that that was getting publicized, and they decided that they're going to change the headlines and make guns mandatory take pride in their arms and as uh, Levesque goes and talks to the community you see a lot of great still photography some images made to look like still photography and he's it's literally just talking to various individuals in the town about their guns and a historian about the community and the community's love of guns and you hear a lot of I guess the typical rhetoric that you'd hear from NRA folk about all about protecting oneself and it's not the guns that hurt people, it's the people that run the guns. But when you look at what motivated this town to get this policy enacted and the fact that they pretty much have a mentality of, oh, well, we were about to lose it, so that's why we're going to flaunt it. it. It has nothing really to do with protection or safety. It wasn't like this town was a crime-ridden place to begin with. It, you know, it sounds like the crime numbers were low to begin with, so... I guess America's obsession with gun. I've always found odd. And this film, especially having a Canadian look at it, just added an interesting perspective to America's gun love. That actually helps me with a bit of context, because I, I did not like the way this started at all with Nicholas writing his email to the town, and we watch as he types in every word basically onto the screen. Anytime you have something where the, the documentarian is kind of putting themselves in the documentary first, my red alarms usually go off. Now that I know that he's Canadian, I still don't like it, but it does make a little more sense. Yeah, a lot of countries don't have the same primal need for guns that America does. And for my own personal stance, I'm hardlined even for left-wing folks. I think that our Second Amendment should be bleached out of existence. My personal middle ground that I would like everyone to get to is that we smelt every gun in the world and then we use 
that metal to rebuild our plumbing infrastructure. Then we use whatever's left over to make the largest statue of Charlton Heston ever. That said, as this went along, I'm in Georgia. Like I said, I, I could drive to this spot. And that level of paranoia that someone is going to come and take your stuff is emblematic of white America. I know that one of the sequences in In Guns We Trust was of a black police officer talking about his guns and what he does to keep them maintained, what his gun of choice is. It's funny to me that Kennesaw made this law as a result of a town banning guns. That already speaks to the insecurity that a lot of gun owners, at least from my perspective, seem to have about their possessions and their ability to protect them. Because honestly, I think if you need a gun to protect stuff, you can throw out whatever hypothetical bad guy out there you want. You aren't confident in your ability to protect people if you absolutely have to have a gun. So some of this was really eerie. I thought that the inadequacy part, that paranoia, that insecurity, was perfectly shot in the sequence where we see an older man with a gigantic hand and a tiny gun. The next still image was of a child with a rifle. It always feels like we're compensating for something. And just this huge man with this tiny gun and then this child with this large rifle the two right next to each other, combined with people saying, yeah, in 2008, we thought all our guns were going to go away. And, you know, here we are more than eight years later. You still got your fucking guns. But those two images right next to each other, I thought was potent and got to the core insecurity of why people want guns so badly. There's a great image where at first I thought it was a still shot where it was like a young man posing with a gun. I guess like he's aiming it. But then you see the flag, the American flag waving in the background. And it was, you know, it's one of those moments where you just you don't even need any words. It's just a powerful image to get to your point about insecurities. That's one of the things that struck me about this film, because here in Canada, we have gun laws and what have you. And people have guns for hunting and various things. And, yeah, there are illegal guns in existence, just as you have in the States. But the sense of paranoia and the hypothetical fear is something that a lot of people reference in this film and I guess you can date back to the history of America where it's always like the fear of this may happen. We need this because of X. We need this because of they might come and steal our stuff and yet there's no example or proof of that occurring. You had that one guy who I believe had a six shooter like he was showing he was breaking down the gun and cleaning it and he had way more ammunition than you could even use in that gun at one time it didn't make sense to me like i can understand if you're a collector and you just like to have them for a show or to put in a case but even then i think that's still a bit of a stretch but this whole paranoia of they whoever they are is coming to take my stuff i find interesting and there's a one shot of a sign that said something like don't beware of the dog beware of the owner and it's like a animated picture of a rifle and it's like you know that says a lot right there that you have to compare yourself to a dog in order to seem threatening, and then you need the gun in order to be more threatening than a dog. Th- that insecurity is something that so many books have been written about, uh, especially when it comes to gun culture, because it's going to be a discussion that never completely goes away, but I'm not entirely convinced it's going to go anywhere anytime soon. Like I said, I'd be fine with our Second Amendment being bleached out of existence, but that is an extreme left position that not even a lot of other lefties would would 
take along with me. But it goes back to America basically being funded by a bunch of cast-off religious nutcases who just wanted to keep their stuff. Put in a little more eloquent terms, like in Europe, in Asia, maybe this is the case in Canada, I don't know. But in a lot of other countries, you can trace your history through your family. You can uh, find land, you have your coat of arms, see what generations mixed with what like there's a strong local history there america was funded late enough in humanities overall sphere development where we don't have that we know we came from somewhere else we didn't come from here unless you're a native american as we've discussed previously as a result of that and because our country is funded by a bunch of loonies who just wanted to keep their stuff there's a lot more sense of identity in what you own or what you perceive your culture to be instead of family ties it's always you know protecting your home and protecting your family but it's it's all just stuff when we get all those shots of the signs and the people kind of scrambling for reasons they're like creating their own existential threats this anonymous other that is going to come and take their stuff because in the back of our history in america we came and took some people's stuff what's going to stop anyone else from coming and taking ours oh well these guns will stop people oh okay and how well has any armed rebellion gone since the initial american revolution has been crushed i don't want to get too off topic because this is something that could go a long ways with me and i despise guns period i'd gone out shooting and i just did not like the way the shock felt up my arm and so on and all the paranoia and all of the warning signs here they kind of make me shudder a bit again i didn't like the initial self-focus but when you consider that it is someone from another country coming in and trying to get an understanding of our gun culture, and the first thing that he receives is a strongly worded email about how it's our God-given right, even though guns are an invention created by man. So, yeah, there strong feelings, kind of more on the topic surrounding it than the movie itself, but it still has some effective moments that hit me pretty hard. I can see your point about the intro. I, I definitely agree. It's probably the weakest moment. It does I don't think you really need it, but it does, I guess, set up the tone and get the initial point across. But overall, the look of it and the subject matter had me engaged. I recommend people definitely check this film out. And also the, the What's Up short film as well, because even if you're not familiar with the 90s, they're both very interesting and they tie very much into 2008 election. And I would argue that they're both relevant now, um, even with a certain junior or presidential son who's the media as of today for certain emails he i remember reading an article earlier this year about him trying to push to get silencers allowed for quote-unquote hunting purposes so there's a lot to be discussed i think these two films are a great jumping off point and the uh, the son of the idiot in chief boy if you want to hear me go off on a lot of different tangents ask me Maybe not the best place with this podcast, because, oh boy, can I talk about a lot of stuff for a while. That might be another Patreon exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick moment to uh, change reels, and then we're going to come back with our feature film of the day. Our 
Our feature film today is The Visitor, the 2007 drama directed by Tom McCarthy. He's the man who brought us the Oscar-winning film Spotlight and also the hidden gem, at least in my opinion, The Station Agent. The film follows Walter, played by the always great Richard Jenkins, a middle-aged professor whose life has changed when he discovers that his New York apartment is being occupied by Tariq, played by Haz Sleeman, and Zainab, played by Denai Guerrera, who... Some, well, I guess most of our listeners probably would know from The Walking Dead, but she's also in the lead in a great film called The Mother of George, which I hope we talk about one day on the show, Andrew. Derek and Zanab play a couple who are both illegal immigrants, and through a series of events, Walter and Tarek soon become fast friends, and it opens Walter's eyes to the complex nature of immigration in post-9-11 America. Now, Andrew, before you join Walter and Tarek in a jam session in the park <laughs> with your drums, which I know you have, tell us why you picked the visitor to discuss this week. Well, this is going to go into the subjects I said I would maybe should avoid, but there's no avoiding it with the visitor. Here in America, we are having a big problem politically. Obviously, there is the giant issue with the idiot who is currently occupying our commander-in-chief position. What I'm more concerned with is the opposition, that being the Democratic Party. I've been a straight-ticket Democratic voter for a very long time, even as my politics have wandered further and further to the left. And one of the big issues with a lot of the self-professed liberal factions in America, usually allied with the Democratic Party, is a detachment from issues that affect people either without money or have a different skin color. Because obviously, Barack Obama, being one of the most prominent Democratic people ever, um, being a black man, it doesn't change that a lot of the Democratic positions seem to be we are willing to collude with the devil so long as we get some watered-down half-measures along the way. And I hate that. I absolutely hate that, and it applies to the academic level of vaguely left democratic people as well, where you have these professors who can talk passionately about immigration, economics, and so on, but aren't willing to put those strong thoughts into words that people can understand or really empathize with people outside of their station in life. With The Visitor, it is almost a perfect critique of this kind of liberal, I mean well, but I don't want to get my hands dirty line of thinking. And I, I've, this is going to be the third time I've watched it, when I watched it again a couple of days ago. And the first two times, I knew that he was a professor, but I didn't realize that he was a professor of globalization, and he still lived in this kind of hermetically sealed, and how... In order for him to care, he required such a direct contact with lives that aren't his, even though he writes about them. Like, this is supposed to be what he studies, but he doesn't have basic empathy for his students. He's cold to his piano teacher. And even with Tarek and Zainab, he takes a long time to warm up to them and see things at their level, like try and feel as they do. So when he's finally left alone at the end, it's this crushing realization that he hasn't done anything to actually help the lives that he supposedly has this strong interest in academically that ends in that phenomenal, heartbreaking final shot of him playing drums alone in the subway. We do not allow these lives space in our own, recognizing the pains that they go through and the joys, 
and the hardships. I think it's Tom McCarthy's best. I do love The Station Agent. I also love Win Win, and I have a certain fondness for Spotlight. But because of the critique and the heartbreak at the center of The Visitor, it hits me hard every time I've seen it. So how about you? I think this is maybe the second or third time seeing this film. And I forgot how much I liked it when I was rewatching it for this. And part of it is because it's very straightforward in its approach. Yes, you do have that older white man learning a life lesson from minorities, you know, and him changing, but still being able to live, I guess, the privileged life while the others can't. But it's done in such a subtle way. You get so wrapped up in the performances, but also just the interaction with the characters, like the friendship between Walter and Tariq feel very authentic and, and real. And even when the mother enters the picture and you get that possible blossoming romance, him realizing that he can kind of move on past his wife as well, all of that worked. Is it my favorite McCarthy film? That I don't know, because I think he's had a... I haven't seen Win-Win, but pretty much everything outside of that, and let us not talk about The Cobbler, I think are, <laughs> I think is, is, is great. So I have to watch Win-Win to compare. But yeah, this film, it's been a while since I had seen it, and it, it still played so smooth for me. And it's good to see that the actors have kind of gone on to, to even bigger and better things since this one. Yeah, we won't talk about The Cobbler, though that would be a fascinating case study in what the hell were you thinking when it comes to Tom McCarthy, because he wrote and directed that. But hey, you can't win them all. Um, but one thing that you said that I really latch on to when I watch The Visitor is the understated fashion. This old white man who does live in a good degree of privilege, like it's hard to maintain an empty apartment in New York when you're a professor at a university. So obviously, whatever his tenure line is, it makes him a good bit of money. Even though he learns lessons from minorities, I think one of the things that Tom McCarthy does to kind of lessen the, oh, here's a privileged old white dipshit who gets to learn a life lesson from other people's pain, is that Tom McCarthy lets the minority characters, Tarek, Zainab, and Mona, when she comes in, they have their own internal lives. Even though Walter is our main character, McCarthy keeps cutting to moments with Tarek and Zainab. In one of my favorite moments, when uh, Mona is talking to a cafe owner, they have the conversation in their language we get to peek in on that you don't really get with a lot of these privileged upper-class movies. Like, the theory of everything is quickly becoming one of our favorite punching bags, and for good reason, because it's so sealed into itself and so self-satisfied but the starkness here just kind of the bare nature of the apartments and with 9-11 always in the background but not quite overtaking everything because like with spike lee's 25th hour it's a good movie but i think what keeps it from being a great movie is some of its kind of over-the-top attempts at elegy whereas here the emptiness that walter feels after the attack after his wife's death is so perfectly realized in all of these empty spaces that he thinks are his to just kind of occupy not live in but just kind of be there since we have these characters who have lives apart from Walter, it helps the visitor create 
a better bond of intimacy in these interactions because we see what Tarek is allowing in when Walter and him start to bond over the drums. And <laughs> I also love um, Zenab's annoyance at Tarek inviting Walter out because, again, it's a quick character beat that shows that these two people, they had their lives before Walter came in. What really I think is kind of the tragedy of this is that they probably would have been deported or left even if Walter didn't come into their lives. And that's, for me, the big eye-opening aspect. He wasn't already fighting for these lives. And just because he came into contact with them, it doesn't make things better. So it's kind of an anti-privileged theory of everything movie in that regard in how it has a life for these characters and not just for Walter. I like that as well. If you think about even when Zainab is just selling her jewelry and stuff on the street, they're trying their best to live this life knowing that any second the shoe could drop and, as you said, they could be deported. The look on her face when she finds out that Tariq has been arrested, she gives off so much emotion in that scene without having to say too much. And I also like that it shows how little others really think about the the immigrants that they see selling wares on the street or just interacting on a daily basis because there's that humorous moment where i think one of the women asked her like what part of africa she's from and she makes reference to well i went here here was really lovely so obviously you must know what i'm talking about right and the guy beside her lean surin's basically saying that you know it, it happens to him all the time as well he says he's from israel and they ask if he's been to the holy land and various things like that and, you, and those little moments they're little nuggets but they're so humanizing and i think this film has a lot of those moments where walter is the focal point but you walk away feeling that everyone's getting equal time and that you're really understanding where everyone is coming from you get a good sense of everyone's background and they're all trying to love and live life the life that i guess walter is taking for granted in their own unique ways and I love how Walter's presence is actually the aberration instead of the other way around. Because obviously you have the, the initial disruption when he walks in on Zainab in the tub. Because he's like, well, why the heck is this person in my apartment? But it's also a nice little twist that the person that they were renting the apartment from was basically stealing it. Like, he just saw an opportunity to rent out an empty space that he somehow had access to and made money off of these two immigrants, which, again, is a way of showing how America takes immigrants for granted all the time in so many different ways. Walter as disruption also leads to one of my favorite reaction shots. Because you mentioned the man who runs the stall next to Zainab. And there's a moment when Walter takes uh, Muna to uh, meet Zainab. And he's asked to run Zainab's stall briefly where he's selling this African jewelry. And a woman who looks very similar but isn't the same woman who was asking Zainab earlier. What are these uh, other African places? You know, I've been there. They don't ask him the same questions they they're just like oh this is nice jewelry and the look on the guy's face in the stall next to them when he comes back and he sees walter sitting there almost with like this doofy blank expression on his face like it's the most natural thing in the world that he's here in this moment it is really lovely even if it's kind of hilarious because he's like yeah i'm just you know, I'm just helping out my friends. What of it? And after that brief exchange of looks, they go back to their lives. That's one of the things that really impresses me 
about The Visitor is that it's not overbearingly dramatic. A lot of the shifts that happen, um, as you mentioned, are subtle. They're quiet. They're about trying to figure out what gears are turning in Walter's head because the rest of the characters are so vocal and honest about who they are and what they want to do and what their lives here have been like. When we do get those dramatic turns, it is stuff that just happens every day that if we saw someone having a dramatic breakdown about we would just kind of shrug and move on which is what happens with walter at the end when he's at the immigration detention center the way how it handles walter's awkwardness um because you're when you're talking about the stall thing i was my mind quickly went back to when they have that first kind of jam session in the park you see Walters wants he wants to be part of it. He he knows it looks like fun, but he's still not quite sure and he kinda sheepishly strolls over and sits down and in that world for the moment he meets Tariq and Zainab he really is the awkward fish trying to find himself and you would think that in most other films they would play it the other way around right it would be the foreigner trying to acclimatize to America where he's in America but Walter seems to be acclimatizing to this whole other world that he has never encountered and he's realizing hey this is great but as you pointed out he can't really change this world he can enjoy it and partake it but at the end of the day him being privileged you know the 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 professor who will sign off on a paper but didn't even actually read what the contents were and can't present it is now in a situation where he's not the top dog he can't just float through this particular situation and when he tries to help he realizes he can like that is a really fascinating approach for this type of film because any other filmmaker outside of mccarthy would have probably tried to big lavish moments would have had the awkwardness probably done from the other side and played for bigger laughs opposed to a few minor chuckles here there's just something about the richness in the characters in this film that works so effectively it goes back to those tiny critiques that i love about the visitor because when you talk about the drum circle walter's first experience with that which again he's a professor of globalization so immigrants and the effects on economy and culture and everything you think that this would be something he would have more intimate familiarity with but he doesn't it's it's just from a detached academic standpoint and it's so funny to me that when he first sees the drum circle and is listening and his very casually, almost imperceptibly bopping his head along with the music that one of his like co-presenters or another academic at this conference walks by him and says, hey, maybe we should invite them in. That is such a perfectly realized moment of dialogue that says so much about Walter and his academics there that they have the realities of their globalization and their academic thinking and their theorizing literally right outside their door but they don't notice it the man who tells Walter maybe we could invite them in he was he's just about to walk by not even paying attention to them. It's because Walter is paying attention that the man decided to say something to him. And it it speaks to that blasé liberal academic mindset where you stay so detached from things that you can't literally see the results that are right in front of you. 
that's something that we can attach to modern day politics. This film was very much a response to 9-11 in, in some ways, but not much has changed. It, I would almost argue that it's gotten worse, that the, the academics have gotten even further detached. We're now in an age of talking points rather than actually talking through issues and, and looking at both sides, which is just fascinating because I think one of the things that's kind of struck me about all the films that we've talked about, they're all from a specific point in time and yet they all still resonate years later and i think that is just wonderful it's funny because you know we opened with the broad grotesque comedy of the what's up eight years later and then in guns we trust we got kind of the horror feel of america's insecurity so we got kind of like a, a rightish stance we've got kind of a centerish stance criticizing america and now with the visitor we've got a criticism of the kind of liberal left-leaning stance but there was something that you said earlier too i wanted to bring up and that's how low-key and beautifully realized those dramatic turns are you said that you may play up something for big laughs imagine charles stone the guy who directed the was up eight years later directing one of the drum scenes in this it would probably be a little more garish it'd probably still be funny but in a very different way i love that the kind of budding romance it doesn't turn into a romance we could see hints of it that these people might grow close, but it is a quiet, devastating emotional connection. They form very quickly, and it's that possibility of a life they could have had had Walter maybe been taking more of a direct interest in the stuff that he teaches instead of theorizing about it or, or keeping it at arm's length. The closest that we get to a big love scene, which we would probably have at another director's take on this, another dramatic romantic moment, is fear. It's when Walter holds Mona and lets her cry and talk, and Walter barely says anything. We're so accustomed to the leading man having those big speeches and those big moments. It speaks so beautifully to McCarthy's instincts as a filmmaker that when Walter has that big blow-up moment in the immigration office, it is a futile release of aggression compared to the desperately needed intimacy that he gives Mona later on in the evening. I really loved the way how the relationship between Walter and Mona unfolds because it's a nice contrast to Tariq and Zainab because Tariq and Zainab, they have love. They are already established. They are a well-fitting couple, but their future is in jeopardy due to external forces, things beyond their control, and they have it and they lose it, whereas Walter comes close to finding it, but, and you know, as you mentioned, that whole possibility of a whole other life, if he had just opened his eyes a bit sooner, but he loses it as well, and both relationships are heartbreaking in their own way, and yet, through all that sadness, you still walk away from the visitor, I don't, I don't want to say uplifted, but you don't walk away depressed, or at least I didn't walk away depressed. You appreciate those little moments in life, the possibility of of love and the love that you have, even if it's for a brief moment of time. That's a wonderful way of putting it. This is not a happy ending. We know that Tarek and Mona, they're gone. They're not coming back, or at least not with things the way they are coming back. Walter's drum playing at the end is one of those rage, rage against the dying of the light things. Like, 
he's suddenly realizing his impotence in his academic position and in the rage that he allowed himself to feel so that all he can do at the end is embrace those memories and just play his drum and padding and the sound and the echoing as he's playing is heartbreaking yes but i like that the visitor basically positions walter and by extension the rest of us as people who can learn just shouldn't learn too late otherwise these lives these potential beacons of existence we won't meet them we won't talk to them we won't listen to them we they just simply will not be I know that we've been talking a lot about the visitor, you know, in, in terms of the characters and, and the subtlety and so on. But visually speaking, again, the starkness, the sparse nature of everything, I love that that creates a space so that the slightest shifts in anyone's emotion or body posture or even just their face, like the way Richard Jenkins is able to signal that he's completely changing his mind about something by like moving his jaw a little bit is phenomenal without the stark design of the shots in the visitor we know that 9-11's on everyone's mind or at least is on walter's mind at the beginning when we see him standing at the window and he's positioned next to two towers i believe they're chairs they're like shadows of chairs or something but it's on his mind it's it's what's on people's minds Without those subtle reminders and without that kind of blank space for the actors to do their subtle shifts in, we wouldn't have nearly as effective a movie. You know, I mentioned 25th Hour a little earlier. I was wondering if there were any particular images or moments that visually hit you. <laughs> I realized I, I may have cheated a bit by basically saying that my favorites are the very beginning and the very end. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious about your approach. McCarthy is always one of those directors who I'm more fascinated by the writing and the performances that he gets out of his actors than him visually. Like He's a good director from a visual standpoint, but he's not one that my mind automatically goes to when I think of great visuals. But I will say that the scene where Zainab takes the mother, I think Walter as well, out on the boat to their favorite place, how they do like the little boat tour of New York, but they don't really venture out too far so there's still that kind of mystery and excitement for them and when they see statue of liberty and just other facets of new york from a distance that's where my mind kind of goes back because it's that beauty of the city beauty of american life the ideals that they still hold this is a wondrous place and the land of opportunity which is something that Walter doesn't really register because as you probably know, whatever attraction is closest to you, you tend to take for granted. And for him, a lot of what America stands for to people coming in there and, and making the journey, he's completely oblivious to. He doesn't see it in that light. He just figures, oh, America is just how it is. Now I'm getting close to getting upset. <laughs> Because it is a beautiful moment, and I, I do like that, that idea that they can see the American dream, but they're forced to stay at a distance when they could just be integrating and living their lives and having their music and jewelry appreciated by everyone. But, but that's not the case, and it's that complacency, that blasé nature of keeping everything intellectualized or at arm's length that the visitor criticizes so effectively, and even though it's depressing at the end we can still learn we can still find these stories we can still tell people about those folks who came into our lives 
I remember my buddy Tony, he would get into arguments with people about immigration because they would say, oh, they can't be in our country. They came here illegally. And he'd say, how do you feel about my job performance? They'd say, oh, you, you do a really great job. You know, we like you. You're a good dude. And he's like, okay, so I shouldn't be here because my parents are illegal. And then just watching the color drain from their face and then start scrambling for excuses instead of McCarthy making a movie that functions in the excuse state, people scrambling for reasons why they treat other people so inhumanely. He focuses entirely on the lessons that we can learn and the connections we can make moving forward while not ignoring the reality of immigration. Not exactly the oorah, stars and bars, explosion-filled patriotic times that most people would want, but for me, The Visitor is patriotism in a sense that we can look hard at what is going on in our country, and we can learn and we can change. Otherwise, we're just going to break up more people than we should. When you picked this one for topic of patriotism, it kind of caught me off guard, but I, I definitely see where you're coming from. And yes, it is a somber film at times, but you know what? There are moments of joy. There is hints of romance. There's a, there's a little bit of everything, minus the action <laughs> and explosions. So I recommend that listeners, if you haven't seen The Visitor, go check it out. And if you have seen The Visitor, you know what? Watch it again. You'd be surprised how well the, the film holds up. Andrew, where can folks find you? You can reach me on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew. You can go to to my website, can'tstopthemovies.com, and you can also give us an email at changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. I also have my own Patreon for the editing work and the production work I do for Changing Reels. It is primarily for Can't Stop the Movies. I've been doing bonus episodes on Patreon of Can't Stop the Podcast, where I've been focusing on 13 Reasons Why. I did a book review last week, and then I will be doing an episode review of the first part. So if you like my production work or would like to help feed my cat and or wife, please consider donating to that. Both valid reasons to help support. <laughs> How about you, Courtney? They can find me on Twitter uh, at ChangingReelsAC. Um, that's our show account. And for me personally, you can find me on Twitter at SmallMind. So for Changing Reels, I'm Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Thank you for listening, and remember, you can always change the conversation about diversity one reel at a time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 